Right. Well, good morning, Southview. How are we? Excellent, excellent. We have a lot of people still milling around. We're going to let them come on in. Glad that you are here with us today. For everyone joining us online, thank you as well. Uh, we know summer is busy and everybody's running around, and so we're so thankful however you connect when you're in town here or on the road, viewing online, however you are worshiping with us today. Thank you so much. So very much, and, and so especially if you're a guest with us, welcome, we're glad that you're here. Uh, we would love to connect with you. The best and easiest way you can do that is to simply grab your cell phone and text right now the word CONNECT to our number 910-424-1298. Just text CONNECT, we'll send you a link, tap on that, answer a couple of quick questions just so we can know who you are, how to minister to you in the best way possible, because we're just so thankful that you are here. But for everyone uh, that you're here today, uh, everyone involved in Southview, we've got our big three announcements, all right? Big three things we want everyone to know about, uh, about what's going on here at Southview, how you can stay plugged in and engaged uh, through these summer months. Number one is this, guys, on August 7th, we're going to have a breakfast for you. We do one about four times a year. So we're going to have our summer uh, men's breakfast, August 7th. Uh, you can sign up for that by texting breakfast to our number. 910-424-1298. Second, uh, beginning in August, we're going to be giving you opportunities for suggesting men to serve in the role of deacon. So we're encouraging you to spend the month of July praying through that. Just spend July spending time in uh, scriptures like Acts chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and just asking the Lord if there's anyone here in our congregation who you believe fits those qualifications and can serve well. Uh, for us, again, I just want to... Uh, uh, let you know kind of where we are because we are a little different than a lot of uh, Southern Baptist churches. For us, deacons, um, they truly are servants. Uh, our deacons don't vote on anything. Uh, they're not guys in a back room voting on, you know, who can change a light bulb. That's not what this does. Uh, our deacons are truly servants. We divide up our membership list with our deacons, and they're the first point of contact to minister to families and members here at Southview. And so if you know of a man who you believe fits those qualifications and can serve well and just being a servant leader, blessing people in our congregation. We're going to give you an opportunity in a few weeks on how to suggest that name for that as we walk through that process. Uh, and third is this. On August 1st, we're going to have a, a uh, church vote after the 11 o'clock service in the FLC. So we've been working for a while now on some facility updates and upgrades. 
just thinking through that, working through that process. We were working on it pre-COVID. COVID hit. We put everything on the back burner. And now that things are rolling back into normalcy a little bit, we're uh, picking those things back up. So we've been working very diligently on uh, some updates and upgrades and things that we need to do. So on August 1st, Sunday after the 11 o'clock service, we're going to vote on the first two big projects we're going to tackle. And that's going to be recarpeting, flooring everything, and repainting everything in the church minus the sanctuary. All right? So we're not tackling the sanctuary yet. That's actually going to be a project we're going to think about down the road. But for right now, we're looking at reflooring and painting everything else. Um, Why you want to do that? A couple of reasons. Walk down our children's hallway and try not to trip. Right? We got to fix that. Um, You walk down the adult hallway. I think we have four different kinds of carpet. I'm not exaggerating. So we got to get that fixed. All right? So you'll find a letter in the back that explains what we're doing uh, and uh, the the amount we think that's going to cost. You can look through all that. If you have any questions, you're welcome to reach out to myself or anyone on our admin team. That's going to be Chris Calhoun, Mark Morris, Mark Cobb, or Roger Betzel. Uh, they would love to help you with any of that as well. Uh, but we just want to kind of walk through this and doing some, some upgrades and updates on our facility. So we'll do that August 1st. So don't forget that. All right. But as we're worshiping together today, let's set the business aside. And let's dive in, let's spend a little time thinking about God, His Word, and what that means to us. I want to read a scripture to you, Deuteronomy chapter 8. So this week, I'm, uh, as I'm spending just my personal time with the Lord and uh, walking through the Bible and praying and reading the scripture, I came across Deuteronomy chapter 8, and it really struck me. I wanted to share it with you today, because, uh, so the book of Deuteronomy is a big giant sermon, right? If you read the book of Deuteronomy, it's going to take you somewhere around an hour and a half to two hours to read through. So, that means, don't argue about my length of sermon, all right? Moses preached for two hours. I can too. All right. But as he goes through Deuteronomy, he's recounting everything that happened and laying out what God's people should be living like and expecting as they enter into the promised land. And Deuteronomy chapter 8, 17 and 18, is is really significant, especially all of chapter 8. He's saying to them, You're going to get into the promised land, and things are going to be good. Things are going to be great. You're stepping into a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to walk into situations, and God is literally just going to cast down armies that should destroy you. Things are going to go amazing. But I want to encourage you, when things are really good, don't forget God, which is a temptation, right? We talk, in, we talk often about when things are bad, turning to the Lord. But oftentimes we have to turn to the Lord when things are bad because we turned away from Him while things were good. It's easy to sit in a room. Family's great. And work is great. And food is great. And fellowship is awesome. And it's easy just to kind of just assume this is how it's supposed to be, right? This is life. This is how it's supposed to be happening. And we kind of turn our thoughts, our attention, our heart away from the Lord because we just assume Things are good. And in Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18, Moses says to the people, Beware, lest you say in your hearts, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. 
So I want to encourage us today. Oftentimes we talk about like, hey, if you're here today and, and you're walking through a struggle, we want to know that God is, is, is right here with you. And that is true. But I want to encourage the other side of the room as well. When things are really good for you, maybe you're sitting here in this room right now and you're thinking, I can't remember life being as good as it is right now. Things are just amazing. Let that turn your heart to praise towards God. Let that be a reason for you to stand up and say, praise Jesus. Because I don't deserve any of this. I didn't get it by my own power and strength. God and his grace has brought us to this point. And let that be something that stirs you in worship and praise and thanksgiving, lifting your voice to the Lord. So I want to pray for us. I want to ask that as we, we, we jump into to worshiping and singing, let everything, the struggles, let that turn your heart to the Lord. And the successes, the joys, the triumphs, the wins, let that turn your heart to praising God. So Lord, I just thank you. I thank you, God, that you are there with us in the mountains and you're there with us in the valleys. You are there with us when things are going amazing and you are there with us as we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death you are never leaving us you're never forsaking us and again we often think about that in times of of sorrow or sadness or things when going difficult how you never leave us or forsake us but i pray god you also empower us to remember that when things are great you never leave us or forsake us you're still the one there guiding all of that this is all by your hand so we turn our hearts to praise towards you so I ask you, God, just this morning, that as we sing, God, that we would sing with hearts filled with praise for you because of all the glorious and amazing things you have allowed us to experience in our lives. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship together. Good morning, church. Because those things are true, sing together and we celebrate our Lord name above all names Jesus the Christ let's sing I'll raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies I'll raise a
sing of the living God. Church, we're, we're, we're doing a new song today of that name, and it reminded me of a scripture found in 1 Timothy where Paul says, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is a Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And the idea here is that in Christ we find our everything Right? We not only find salvation, but we find hope, and we find peace, and we find grace. We find mercy. I love how Scripture calls believers a friends of God, not just a subject to the King. Isn't that amazing? He says you are co-heirs with Christ. Doing all things we can celebrate. So as Pastor Brad says, not just in the highs, not just in the lows, but in everything, may we be found to be our Lord and Savior above all things in our lives, above all our treasures, above all our possessions, above all our hopes and wants and needs. When we just say, all I want, all I know is Christ crucified. And so we sing and we celebrate together of the living God. Lift up the name of Christ together.
churches.
really every Sunday, spend a little time praying together, because one, the Bible tells us to, and it's so encouraging, and, and I want to kind of lead us in prayer in, in a different way, so this morning, as I was getting ready, I got a text from a friend of mine that I haven't spoken to in years, and really kind of came out of nowhere and the text was just hey man I was up early this morning praying and reading my Bible and you and Marie came to my mind and I just spent some time praying for you and just wanting to know how thankful I am for you and and uh, just really praying God's blessings on you uh, today and, and uh, just as you move forward in life and it was just such such an encouragement right just came out of nowhere and as I was thinking about our time praying together this morning, that really came to my mind. A, a major part of prayer isn't just you lifting your request to God, but you praying for other people. Um, and so I'd like to do something for us uh, this morning. I want to encourage you in two ways. One, we're going to kind of settle our hearts for a minute and ask the Lord if there's someone that he would have you pray for. Just uh, uh, not like this person is... Uh, doing something bad, so I'm praying for them. But but encouraging prayers, right? Even if someone is walking in some kind of uh, sin they need to be set free from, I mean, the Scriptures, Romans 2, says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. How are we calling people up to who God has called them to be instead of just calling them out because of their sin? And so I want to encourage you this morning in a couple of things. One, I, I want us to kind of settle our hearts and ask the Lord if there's anyone that, that comes to our mind, right, that we can pray just thanking God for encouraging. And the second thing is this, uh, literally while we're sitting here, I encourage every one of you, grab your cell phone and text them that you're praying for them, right, this little audience participation. Uh, maybe you're praying for someone in this room, we'll hear dings all over the place, ding, ding, ding. But it's, it's great to pray for someone, but isn't it amazing? Isn't it so such an encouragement when someone comes to you and says, you know, man, I was praying for you, just praising God for you, just really thankful. I'm just praying that God does such great things in your life. It just, you walk away so much more obviously encouraged. So let's just bow our heads for a moment. And take some time here and just ask God, is there anyone would have you just pray prayers of thankfulness and encouragement. And if so, let's just do that right now. Just right now at this minute. Pray for them. Lift them up.
believe, God, as we just lifted people up to you, I pray, God, that you would not just encourage these people that we are lifting up and praying for. I ask you, God, that they would, as they hear of our prayers for them, that they would just be emboldened in you, just be thankful to you that you brought them to someone else's mind to pray for. Just what an encouragement, God. Not only does that mean that that when someone prays for me, I'm on their mind, but I'm on God's mind because God led them to pray for me. So just good, thank you. I pray, God, that you would allow these people to be encouraged, to be lifted up. I pray, God, that you would help us to reach out and, and encourage people, God, that we're praying for them, that we're lifting them up, that they would know they're being set before the throne of grace. Thank you, Lord. Do this in us. I pray we'll be people of encouraging prayer, praying for one another often, not just because something is wrong, we're praying for that, but Lord, just someone comes to our mind and we're just thankful for them and we pray, that we pray your blessings on them. We ask God that you'll allow this to rise up more and more and more in us as a people. We'll just be a blessing and encouragement to them. Do this in us. Do this in us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I do encourage you right now, grab your cell phone and text them and tell them, hey, I pray for you. I'm in church right now. All right. Uh, well, as you're texting with one hand, with the other, grab your Bible. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is where we're going to be. So in Acts 15, it's, this is actually one of the most important events in the history of Christianity, Acts chapter 15. We're about to tackle one of the most consequential chapters in the entire Bible. And for us as a church today, if we're going to be a church that, that makes a true powerful gospel impact in Cumberland County and around the world, we as a church have to do business with Acts 15 and ask God what that means for us, all right? This is a significantly important passage of scripture for us, all right? So get ready, tighten up the seatbelts, this one's a big deal, let's jump in together, all right? Acts chapter 15, let's pick it up in verse 1, all right? But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. All right, stop for one second. Listen. So now, if you've been with us, we've been spending time with a church in a town called Antioch in Acts. All right? So Christianity starts in Jerusalem. It starts really as an outgrowth of the Jewish faith. The first Christians were Jewish men and women, so they did a lot of, they continued on really all the Jewish customs, but they understand how all of that pointed to Jesus, so they were deeply Jewish and worshipers of Jesus at the same time. In the process of that, some Jewish men went down to a city called Antioch, began talking to non-Jewish people about Christianity, they started getting saved, and so now we have Jewish people living deeply Jewish lives, serving, worshiping Jesus, and Gentile, non-Jewish people living very much non-Jewish lives, but also loving and serving and worshiping Jesus. In the process of that, some people from Jerusalem came down to Antioch and said to them, whoa, 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 whoa pump the brakes, guys. The only way you can be a Christian is to be Jewish also. 
so you have to abide by all of the Jewish rules and customs and laws if you're going to be a Christian. Specifically, verse 1, you must be circumcised. Now, you would imagine what the obvious result of this, not a lot of guys signing up for the new members class. Right? A lot of wives in the room, a lot of husbands going, I think I need to pray about this a little while longer. Right? I don't think I'm going to be texting member anytime soon. So here's what they did as a result. Verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas, they are vehemently opposed to this. They have no small dissension and debate. In other words, they did a lot of yelling. All right? They did all this. After all that, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they said, okay, let's head up to Jerusalem. Let's go to the apostles. Let's get their word on this thing. Let's figure out what we're supposed to be doing. Verse 3. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So real quick, if you've read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the life of Jesus, there is a group of people that really, really, really hate Jesus and attacked him vehemently and really drove his eventual arrest and crucifixion. It was a group called the Pharisees. Now, apparently, according to verse 5, so it calls them believers, some of those Pharisees eventually realized Jesus is God. He did raise from the dead. We are to worship him, and they became Christians. However, they still kept a lot of their Pharisee roots. So, Quick side application point. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you automatically leave behind all the junk from before you were a Christian. Is that tracking? Right? I know you were told, ask Jesus into your heart, and everything magically turns to gold and roses. They lied. All right? Sanctification, the growth in the Lord, ripping away of sin, walking in holiness can be a much longer process than they told you. All right? So you got some Pharisees. They came to faith in Jesus, but they still got a lot of Pharisee stuff wrapped up in their heart. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We got to circumcise these guys, and we have to order them, command them to obey all these rules before we're going to let them in. I mean, they don't know the handshake or anything, right? They have got to obey the rules. So here's how they handled it. First, Peter stands up. And here's what he says, verse 7. And after there had been much debate, again, a whole lot of yelling. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by, give me that word, faith. Right? So first, Peter stands up, and he's recounting, if you remember walking through Acts, 
Peter went to a Gentile's house, a, a, a Roman officer named Cornelius, goes to Cornelius, proclaims the gospel to Cornelius. Cornelius and all of his household get saved. They're not Jewish. They're not obeying the law. They're not obeying the Jewish rules, but they still come to faith in Jesus by faith, just in Christ alone, and by God's grace, they're saved, they're filled with the Spirit, and God does great things in them. So then Peter keeps going, verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the, give me that word, grace the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So here's what Peter says in verses 10 and 11. I love this. He's like, so let me see if I get this straight. Riddle me this. You've not been able to keep any of the rules. right? You break the rules. You know you break the rules. But now you're going to tell these people they have to keep the rules. You're not able to keep? What? Right? Don't you realize, don't you remember that we came to faith in Jesus by grace because we knew we can't be good and keep the rules. So why are we going to command these people to try to do something we could never do? That is the very definition of hypocrisy, right? Rules for thee, but not for me. Then, in verse 13, James, the brother of Jesus, he stands up and jumps into the argument. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And now he quotes Amos chapter 9. Verse 16, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So here's what James comes in and says. So Peter says, hey, look, God's already doing this. He's done it in Cornelius. He's done it in other people. It's not a new thing that God's doing. He's been doing it, number one. Number two, y'all can't keep the rules either, so why are we going to demand that they keep rules we can't keep, and then James comes in and says, not only that, but number three, God prophesied this 750 years before this time. This is exactly what he's going to do. He's going to raise non-Jewish people up to be called under the name of God and be followers of God through faith in his son. This is exactly what God is doing. He's already doing it. He told us he was going to do it. He did it in us. He's going to keep doing it in them. This is something that we must hold to. So then, after all of that, verse 19, James, this is the half-brother of Jesus, who's apparently the new leader of the church at this point, gives his answer to it all. Verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood, for from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So, so here's what all this means. This is really coming down to the question of 
who is a Christian, what does it mean to be a Christian, and how do we tell someone else to become a Christian, all right? Do we set it on a bunch of rules they got to follow? Do we say, no, 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 it's just faith in Jesus Christ? Where did all this come? So after hearing all of this, James stands up and says this. Here's what we're going to do, guys. We're not going to trouble those Gentiles. We're not going to aggravate and agitate them. We're not going to make them obey the rules. All we're going to say is this. Number one, don't get hooked up with things that were sacrificed to idols. Two, abstain from sexual immorality. Three, don't uh, uh, have any animals that have been strangled. And four, stay away from consuming blood. So, a couple of things. Number one, things feel awkward. When I read the Bible, I look for things that don't make sense to me and then lean in and ask God, what does this mean? All right? Because I don't know if you know this yet or not, there's stuff in the Bible that feels weird. Right? There's stuff in the Bible where you go, I don't really understand that. Lord, help me. And so, as I'm reading this, it seems to say, look, we're not going to make the Gentiles obey a bunch of rules to become Christian. Now, obey these rules. I'm sorry, what? And the rules are kind of weird. Don't strangle animals and don't eat your steak medium rare. Like, what? All right. I guess. So at first it doesn't make sense, so let's take just a super quick deep dive and figure this out. What they're setting up here is an understanding of how Christians who come from very, very different backgrounds can both love Jesus and be in church together and still not agree on everything, right? That's what they're trying to come to an understanding, a consensus on, a way for men and women who grew up deeply, profoundly Jewish, who are still going to uh, 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 circumcise their kids, who are still going to obey certain dietary laws, who are still going to wash their hands in certain ways before they eat their meals, how they can do all of that, but at the same time not demand that Gentiles do it. And conversely, how Gentiles can say, you know what, I think if your steak is well done, it's a sin against God, but I'm not going to hold that against you. Right? How they can eat their steak medium rare and believe that you put bacon on anything, it makes it better. They can believe that and walk in that, but not do that stuff in front of the Jewish believers because it might offend them. So figuring out a way for them to have what's called Christian liberty, a way for them to trust by faith in Jesus, and at the same time uh, not hold one another with these laws. So what does this mean? At the beginning, I said to you that this is one of the most important scriptures in the Bible for the church today. And you might read this and go, I don't get it. Why is it that a Bible story that talks about a group of people being told, don't strangle animals and don't eat your your medium rare, what does that have to do with us? Why is that a big deal? Why does that matter? Well, let's explain it, okay? I'm going to give you three big ideas. Three big things I think we can pull from this that show us why this is significant, what this means for us, and how this drastically, significantly impacts how we're going to be as a church, okay? What we are as a church, what we believe, where we go from here is significantly impacted by what we're going to see out of this Acts chapter 15, all right? So, big idea number one is this. Legalism is deadly and it must be rejected, all right? Legalism is deadly. 
It is a poison. It is a cancer. It is horrific, and it has to be rejected. It has to be cut out and kicked out, all right? So what is legalism? Legalism is the belief that your external actions somehow get you closer to God. That what you do is what really matters. That what you do is what earns favor with God, encourages favor with God, and gets you close with God. And so when this is our focus in church, and for some of us in this room, for many of you, you grew up in a church where this was kind of the deal. Now, they knew, obviously, salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross and rose again. You believe by faith in him. That's what makes you a Christian. Yes, that's true, but come on, let's be real. You grew up in a church where you heard more youth group lessons on how not to drink and not to have sex and not to smoke and not watch R-rated movies than to trust by faith in Jesus. Yes? It was infinitely more about the things you should not do rather than the glories of who Jesus is and what he has done for you to now change you. The focus was on how do you make sure you don't do the bad things. Just don't do the bad things and we're all going to be all right. And we push that because a couple of reasons. One, if as church leaders and parents we can make sure our kids don't do the bad things, we feel better about ourselves. And two, they're easy check marks, right? It's an easy thing to look at and go, yes, I do that, and no, I do that, I don't do that, so evidently, I must be close to God. It's kind of like this. If I decide I want an apple tree in my backyard, and the way that I'm going to get an apple tree is I leave church today, I swing by Walmart, I buy a bag of apples, and I go to my house, and I go to a pine tree in my backyard, and I start duct taping apples to the pine tree. And I back up and go, I have an apple tree. Do I have an apple tree? No. I got a pine tree with some apples duct taped to it. And eventually what's going to happen? Those apples are going to rot, it's going to fall off, and it's still just going to be stuck with the pine tree. This is legalism. Instead of focusing on and setting our heart on who Jesus is in me, who Christ is for me, what Jesus Christ has done for me and in me and to me and through me, instead of focusing on the seed of the Holy Spirit that's been placed into my heart, which gifts me and empowers me and leads me to walk in holiness, instead of doing that, I just grab a bunch of religious activity, duct tape it to my life, and call myself a Christian. Some of you are sitting in this room today because this is your attempt to duct tape fruit of Christianity to your life. Even think about it, if you grew up again in the 90s, uh, you go to youth camp in the 90s, and youth camp in the 90s is uh, rededication night on Thursday night. Everybody rededicates your life on Thursday night. Everybody. Doesn't matter if you don't need it. Come down front, do it. We will keep singing how great is our God, over and over and over, until everyone comes down front. So you come down front and you rededicate your life. And what are you saying when you rededicate your life? Oftentimes what you're saying is, there are certain bad things I'm going to stop doing, and certain good things I'm going to start doing, and now that's re me rededicating my life. And it's true, maybe there are certain bad things you do need to stop doing, and good things you need to start doing, but... Is this just an attempt for you to duct tape good activities to your life instead of 
focusing on the seed of Jesus Christ that has been planted in you. Galatians 2.20, his life now lives in me, and by faith he now lives through me. If we're going to be a church that truly makes an impact for the gospel here in our community and around the world, we're going to have to be a church that hates legalism and ferociously preaches the gospel. That it is not your good works that are going to save you. And it's not your good works that are going to make you look good before God. It is just faith in Jesus Christ. And we proclaim that gospel. And then we trust Jesus to bear out whatever fruit that he's going to bear out in your life. We trust Jesus to do that in you. As we just preach the Bible and love you and pray for God to do a work in you. And he does. Legalism is deadly. And this is what the apostles in Acts 15 are pushing back against. They don't want the sin of legalism to be pressed in on their people. The second thing you'll see is this. Christian liberty must be defended fiercely but practiced cautiously. Christian liberty must be defended fiercely but practiced cautiously. Here's what I mean by that. Christian liberty is the idea that there are many things in life the Bible does not directly discuss. Or does not, if it does discuss it, it doesn't give a clear yes or no in how it always should be addressed and handled. And so Christians have the freedom to fall into either category. And we must defend the right, the Christian right, the God-given empowerment for believers to say yes to things and no to things and trust that God is the one leading them. It's exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 15. They are saying, look, for you Jewish believers, yes, you can keep obeying these laws, but we can't force the Gentiles to do it. And for Gentiles, no, you don't have to do that, but you can't go busting up into this Jewish guy's house with a bacon double cheeseburger going, what's up? You have to love them. And this happens over and over and over and over. This is a big deal for us today, Christianity today. This is massive. Hot-button issue. A big one that always comes across, alcohol. What is the Christian stance on alcohol? Some Christians would look at it and say, hey, look, the Bible is clear in warning against the dangers of alcohol. The Bible is clear that drunkenness is a sin and a significant sin that can lead to other sins. One in six people, this is actually a true statistic, one in six people who drink alcohol will become addicted to it. And so some Christians would say, you wouldn't keep a dog in your house that bites one out of six people, would you? 100,000 people a year die from alcohol-related death. And so some Christians would go, I mean, it's clear. You shouldn't do that. And then other Christians would step in and go, I hear what you're saying, but i got a couple questions. Yes, the Bible does warn against the dangers of alcohol, but the Bible also talks about some of the joys that come with it. And yes, for sure, drunkenness is a sin, but, but you don't have to become intoxicated. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus turned water into wine. And I know every Baptist preacher tries desperately to teach you that Jesus turned water into grape juice. He didn't. Like, he didn't. Um, and if you have some questions about that, I'd love, we, we can sit down over a nice glass of grape juice and talk about it. That's awesome. We could do that, seriously. But he didn't. 
Like later in the New Testament, you have the Apostle Paul encouraging his son in the ministry, Timothy, to drink wine for his stomach. You, you have in 1 Corinthians where um, the Apostle Paul is rebuking the church at Corinth because people are showing up early, drinking the communion wine and getting drunk on it. I mean, how much grape juice do you have to consume to get drunk? My guess is a lot. I don't know. Christians from that perspective would look and say, well, yeah, people abuse alcohol, but people abuse a lot of things. People abuse food. Does that mean we can't eat? People abuse sex. Does that mean husbands and wives shouldn't have sex? I vote no. So what do we do in this situation? It is a matter of conscience issue. There are people who feel deeply opposed to alcohol because of things in their life. Listen, there's... There are a couple of, of, of things that are prominent in Lynch men. Alcoholism is one of them. I, I preached my uh, cousin's wedding yesterday. And at an hour and a half reception afterwards, I talked to four of my family members who used to be deeply oppressed by alcohol, but God delivered them from that, and now they walk in freedom from it, and they just don't want to be around it. That's four just in my family that were at the wedding yesterday, right? This is a lynch men. We have a couple of traditions. We're quick to anger, and we love to drink. So I made a decision in college. This was not a Christian decision. It wasn't a spirit-empowered decision. It was before I really was walking much with Jesus. I made the decision freshman year of college. I wasn't going to do that because I watched it literally destroy my family. So I said, you know, I'm just not going to do that. And to this day, I don't. I don't. I, I got to be honest. I think all beer tastes like pee. I know. I know you think your. I know you think your IPA is going to swing me. It's not. Don't try. It's just not. Like I'm not interested. But I also understand because I know the Bible. That's an issue I can't hold to. I can't hold to it. It's not my job. I believe alcohol is one of those matter of conscience issues. So I heard one pastor explain it this way. I'm going to steal it because I think it's really smart. He said, in order for your church to be biblically faithful, we have to have open-handed issues and closed-handed issues. And we have to fight to keep the closed hand closed and the open hand open. Right? So closed-handed issues. The Bible is real, Jesus is God, virgin birth, only way to salvation, right? Closed-handed issues. We don't even debate the possibility of opening this hand. We fight to keep it closed because we have to keep it closed. We have to hold to these beliefs if we're just going to be a Christian. But then there are open-handed issues. And if we're going to be a truly biblically faithful church, we have to not only fight to keep the closed hand closed, we have to fight to keep the open hand open. What kills churches is legalism and liberalism. Liberalism, trying to pry that closed hand open and say, well, I mean, you know, does the Bible really say, and does it really mean, and do you really have to, and is that really a sin? Legalism, or liberalism, we've got to keep that closed. And the other, and maybe you've been in churches that experience this, what destroys a church is when that open hand starts to close a little bit. 
say, yeah, 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 but you're going to have to do this, and you can't do that. You get, if we're going to be really gospel faithful, if we're really going to proclaim the gospel in its entirety, in its fullness, to see an impact happen in our community and around the world, we've got to keep the open hand open. Politics. Oh, here's a good one. Vaccine or no vaccine? Whoa. Today, I've walked in today and I've had conversations with people who are very much for it and very much not for it. Like today, I've had those conversations. So what do we do? We say, hey, man, it's a matter of conscience issue. If you feel like you should, great. If you feel like we shouldn't, okay. We're going to trust the Lord is doing the work in that. We do not believe we have a scriptural call for one way or the other. And so we want to be gracious and kind and loving in things we disagree about. This is huge for us as a church if we're going to move forward together and really make an impact. Keeping that closed hand closed, keeping that open hand open. Ferociously defending Christian liberty, but doing it cautiously. Cautiously. So, if you drink... You know what? You probably don't want to be doing that around people who struggle with it, right? If you have, and, and forget struggling, if you know that you're having a friend in the church, their family over to the house, and, and they're not drinkers, that's not something that they're comfortable with, you know, maybe you keep the wine up, right? You don't bring that out because, you know what, I don't want to offend, right? I, do I have freedom to do this? Sure, but I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. I love them. John 13, 34, Galatians 6, 2, Galatians 5, 13, Romans 13, 8, 1 Corinthians 9, 19, all speak of love, love, love. Let love be the guiding force in how we deal with these things. That's exactly what's happening in, 1 in, in, in Acts 15. They're lovingly not forcing the Gentiles to obey these rules, and the Gentiles are lovingly not parading their freedom in front of these Jewish believers that may struggle with some of these things. Love is guiding us. And, and last is this. We must do nothing to unnecessarily trouble those turning to God. I love this. So the gospel is already offensive. The gospel already is offensive. The gospel is, you're looking at someone and saying, you have so offended God, you deserve to burn in hell forever. That is offensive. That is something that strikes deep to the core. That's just something that, that, that brings up defensiveness. Whoa, 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 I am not that bad. I am not that much of a sinner. Well, not like that guy. That's crazy. You think I deserve to burn in hell? No, God does. The gospel all by itself is offensive. All right? Uh, the, the scriptures say that it's a stumbling block that causes people to trip. The Bible says that the gospel is the smell of death to people who don't believe. I once had a, a rodent get up under our house and die. You ever had that? Pro oh, isn't that a joy? Right, so I'm walking through the living room going, what in the world? Like you're checking the bottom of shoes and you're checking kids and like, what is that smell? It's horrible. So what did I have to do? I had to climb under the house, 
find this thing and get it out so the smell wouldn't be so bad. That's exactly the way the Bible says people who don't believe by faith in Jesus respond to the gospel. It is like a possum crawled under their house in July and died. And they have to do everything they can to get that smell out of their nostrils. This is why if you talk to someone about the gospel and they get angry with you and kick you out of their life because it's not you, it's the smell of the gospel that they can't stand. It's offensive already. So what Acts 15 is saying is this. If it's already offensive, we don't need to help it be more offensive. Right? What churches do is we add things to this that make it even more difficult. So it uses this word trouble. And actually in Acts chapter 15, it uses two different words that get translate as trouble. The first is in chapter 15, verse 19. When it says that um, we don't want to annoy the Gentiles who are turning to God. And, 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 and that the word trouble means, again, to annoy, to aggravate, to, 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 to agitate. It's the idea of, of mosquitoes buzzing around your head and it just annoys you. Right? Just, just, you're just wanting at them. You ever been outside and it's a beautiful night? It's not too hot. It's not humid. Like, it is perfect. You're sitting outside drinking your grape juice and you're having a blast, man. Like, life is so good. But then, that smells rotten. At first, it's not bad, but then you're, how did we meet up? And even though you're enjoying sitting out there, the mosquitoes are so annoying, they drive you inside. And what Acts 15, 19 is saying is this. As a church, we can annoy people so much with our legalism, even though they enjoy being in church and enjoy hearing the gospel and are starting to stir towards that. We just annoy them to the point where like, I can't, I can't, I can't do it anymore. I'm out. The other word for trouble is used in verse 24, and this translates out as to agitate and aggravate, to stir up, to stress out, basically. You ever had a job where you legitimately either considered or did quit? Not because you didn't love the job, you loved the job, but the person you worked for stressed you out, right? Like you, you enjoyed the job, but they made it so aggravating you just couldn't stay there or have you ever been in that situation that boss left a new boss came with a different kind of mindset and it's like oh i can enjoy this now thank you it's exactly the way it's describing church for a non-believer we can do things that stir up and stress them out to where they go you know i i i can't i can't i can't i can't be around this if we're going to be a gospel-faithful church, we have to make sure that we don't annoy or agitate those who are turning to God. So I've been around church for a long time. Let me give you a few that I've heard. Hey, I'm glad you're a Christian now, but now it's time to put on a tie. I'm glad you're a Christian, but now you need to cut your hair. I'm glad you're a Christian. Now you need to cover up those tattoos. I'm glad you're a Christian. Now you need to pull your kids out of public school. Hey, I'm glad you're a Christian. Now you just listen to Christian music. What's going on with this is we're 
We're adding mosquitoes buzzing in people's ears. We're adding stress in their life that has nothing to do with the gospel. Our job as a church is to proclaim the gospel of Christ, teach the Bible, pray for the Holy Spirit to convict and grow his kids, and not annoy and agitate people with unnecessary rules. So I'm going to ask our band to come up. And, and as they're doing that, I want to I give us a couple of thoughts to pray through. First is this, you as a Christian, can I ask you this really straightforward question as a Christian? Have you unintentionally added things? Opinions, ideas to Christianity that annoy and agitate non-believers? It's so easy to confuse our opinions with the faith. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that as followers of Christ, we seek to have everything driven by the scriptures, right? We want to we do things in ways that are, that are informed by the word. But if we're not careful, we'll take our opinions, our thoughts, our ideas, and we'll make that gospel issue. And we'll demand allegiance to it. And just like these Pharisees did with the Gentiles in Acts 15, we will command that they obey our rules. Brothers and sisters, that's just not who we're going to be. That's not who we're going to be because that's not what the Bible teaches us, and that is contrary to the gospel. If you're looking for a church that's going to very neatly lay out all the rules you need to follow, you're going to feel more comfortable somewhere else. You're just going to feel comfortable somewhere else. It's not who we're going to be. Now, where the Bible is clear, we're going to be clear. Where the Bible is strict, we're going to be strict. And where the Bible is silent, we're going to shut up. Because that's what it means to be biblically gospel-centered. And for non-Christians, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, let me just speak to you just for a minute. I want to I circle back and I want to read another scripture to you that we saw in Acts chapter 15, verse 9. Listen to the way God speaks to you as a non-Christian, okay? God made no distinction between us believers and them non-believers, or Jews and Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. God made no distinction. But he cleansed their hearts by faith. So I want to ask everyone just to kind of bow your heads for a moment. And, and I, want to, I want to talk to you just for a second. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, God sees you. Listen to me. God sees the real you. And he still wants you. God sees the real you that no one but your wife knows. God sees the real you that your wife doesn't even know. He sees you, and He still wants you. His desire is not that you take time and energy to try to clean yourself up. His desire is that you would allow Him to clean you up. He's not going to cleanse you through your own works and your own abilities, and you, again, trying to take 
apples and duct tape it to your life. He's going to cleanse you. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the good works of Jesus Christ, what Jesus did on the cross for your sin. So today, will you trust in Jesus for your salvation? Will you ask Jesus to cleanse your heart and make you new? Will you trust Jesus to take away your sin? He came, he died, he rose again. Will you trust him to do this work in your life? Today you can do that. Just simply say, Jesus Christ, I know that you are God, that you died and rose again for me. Take away my sin, cleanse me, make me new. Father, I pray that you'll do this work. I pray for us as Christians, God, that you would make it so clear to us what are gospel Bible issues and what are not. And that we'll stay faithful to what you've called to be faithful to. And that we will trust you for what does not fit into that category. And I pray, God, for those here today that aren't followers of Christ, God, that you would stir in them, draw them, cleanse them for your glory. pray this in Jesus' name. Let's stand together. Let's end our time worshiping Jesus Christ who cleanses us and makes us new. Not by our good works, but just because of his grace. Let's worship him.
just thank you. We thank you for your holiness. We thank you, God, for your love. We thank you, Lord God, that you call us to salvation and you make us new completely apart from ourselves or anything that we can work up. I pray, God, at this room right now, you would raise up us as men and women to be faithful to the gospel, to live out the gospel message, believing that you, Jesus, are the one who are going to do those works in us. We don't have to stir them up in some legalistic way. And that we're going to proclaim a true gospel. We're calling people to just trust by faith in Jesus Christ and let him do this work. Repent of sin, turn from sin, turn from this world, and let Jesus Christ be the one who does this work in you. Pray, God, that you would empower us to proclaim this message as loud as we can, for as long and as far as you'll let us go. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. We love you. Have a great week.